Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello, Ed. Well, this is not Jeff Lloyd. This is the wonderful Melissa Ben. Jeff is off um, having a 50th birthday trip with his wife, Sarah. And I am absolutely delighted that we have friend of the podcast, friend of mine, longtime friend of my family, Melissa Ben. Rachel described you as a supply teacher. I don't think that. I mean, I, obviously, I love supply teachers, but I don't. I don't see you as necessarily that. I see. I see us as sort of being incredibly lucky to have oh, you. Oh well, Ed, you, you certainly know how to make a girl feel good. I mean, I am. Oh. I'm slightly feeling I'm not Jeff Lloyd syndrome, but I'm also wondering: is he still celebrating his fiftieth birthday? Because the last of your podcasts, he just celebrated it then as well. Yeah, it's a long, it's a it's a long birthday that he's having. He's feeling I'm not Melissa Ben syndrome, no doubt. Listening, listening, um, listening to us, but it is it's absolutely great to have you. And we should sort of say full disclosure that we have known each other for a long time. I'm actually wondering when did we first meet? Do you think? Okay, I think we first met, and I hate to say I probably don't remember it as well as I should you worked in my dad's basement my dad yes I do you were one of the he had a group of people I think they were called the tea bags tea for Tony I think I might have been the first one actually I don't think they were called tea bags at that point but then they you know as more and more people came he then gave a name because he loved to do that like when he was a minister in the 1970s he had the pink shirt club on a Friday and that was his sort of thing and What was the pink shirt? Well, everybody in the, he and all the civil servants wore pink shirts on a Friday. And, you know, that's only just come to me right now. I haven't thought about the pink shirt. How but, extraordinary. Was that Was that his – did you have to wear a pink shirt? Was it optional? Well, I'm sure because he was such a tolerant sort that it was entirely optional. Yeah. But so yeah. but I, think, I think the first time I would have met you, Ed, because there is a bit of an age difference between us, I would have been probably a rather severe – 20, late 20 something, and you were a keeny 17 year old working in Tony Ben's basement. Or 16, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 16. And so I yeah. probably came down to say hello to my dad. You were in the basement being keen and serious and left wing. And what were you do? What would you, what were you doing at that point? Were you write? Were you a journalist? Yes, I, I was. Yeah, I was beginning to write. I mean, I have a theory that the twenties are a really complicated time for most people, and I think yeah. they're even more so. I've got so are the fifties actually. My my experience, yeah, well, but anyway, and the forties and the thirties. But anyway, I was writing. I was living in a basement in Kilburn. I enjoyed my twenties, but I found it quite stressful. But then that applies to every decade of my life. 
And so I'm delighted that you're guest hosting, as I think we say in the lingo. <laughs> and I've been out, I'm out on the local election campaign trail. I'm, I'm off to Great Yarmouth uh, today after we've done this. I was in Darlington yesterday. You must have met a lot of memories. Oh, God. Do you know, coming from a political family, I hear your your programme and I immediately feel that guilt, that not on the doorstep. <laughs> I'm not, hashtag Labour doorstep, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. When did you first canvass with your dad or your mum? I think I must have been as young as seven or eight. And my dad wow. was, an, and then he was the MP for Bristol South East. And we would all go down as a family. And I remember it was quite fun because we'd stay in some place. And I enjoyed that, all the families, you know, camping out somewhere. I didn't like canvassing. I think I had a... A feeling then, which I've never been able to really throw off as an adult, that it's really quite rude to knock on people's doors. And that I know that I, you know, I think of myself as quite a sociable person, but I know the way I open my own door, even to this day, is like, what the hell do you want? What are you doing? And, and I'm not ready for you. So I've learned how to deal with that now. I think I'm probably, if, I hope, a more skilled canvasser now. But as a seven or an eight-year-old, I think I asked to be put on leaflet uh, duty. And, and leaflet duty, of course, then the problem is hands and dogs and letterbox and all that yes. kind of thing. But at least yes. you weren't ruining people's early evening. And, and then the other thing I felt, which you won't feel as a seasoned political person, is... You're always worrying people would ask you a question that you couldn't answer. And especially I know people tend to worry about that, which is whereas actually the there's that's not tend doesn't tend to be the nature of the canvassing conversation. I think there is always a certain sort of trepidation as you go out. But then I well, I find I really enjoy yeah. it, I must say. Well look, it is Fantastic to have you. And I think I should say what we're going to be talking about. It, it, we're having a conversation prompted by the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon and Jacinda Ardern, who both decided to step down from politics in 2023. And they talked about the personal toll that these jobs had taken on their lives, which got us thinking about the topic of burnout, stress and changing careers. And we're talking to four guests today, which is we don't we generally do three guests, but we're talking to four guests today about navigating career changes, career breaks, and career regret, which is an interesting concept. <laughs> we're going to be speaking to work psychologist Dr. Ali Bujanovchanin, former FT journalist turned teacher Lucy Kellaway, a good friend of mine, Katie White, who is on a career break with her family, and to Jager Wise, who decided she'd had enough of her job and wanted to get into brewing. So I'm quite fascinated by this conversation of changing uh, careers. And how do you describe yourself? Novelist, journalist, campaigner? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a writer and a campaigner when I'm asked to do, do a simple sort of summary. But I guess, I hate this word, but I guess I have developed over the decades a portfolio type yeah. life. So... I realised about 15 years ago, I love talking to people about ideas, a bit like you. And so I yeah. do a lot of like literary festivals, meetings. I think you and I have done a few of those where you sit and you discuss a book, you discuss ideas. Now, we have this um, tradition on the podcast of us saying what our reason to be cheerful for the week is. So I'm going to ask you, what is your reason to be cheerful, Melissa? Well, OK, can I do, can I do a quick personal one and then a... Yes. So my quick personal one is that I've started running again. So I, I started running. I know you're into your triathlon and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't get on a bike. Sort of. Yeah. So I, I started running about five, six years ago and was really bad at it and then did quite a lot of it in the pandemic and then did my back in and had to stop. But I've started again and it just boosts your mood. So I try to run three times a week for about an hour Wow. I have to say, I'll tell you what, to show you how bad I am at it. I was running with a friend and she said, look at that young teenager. He's just walked past us and overtaken us walking. <laughs> <laughs> but And do you do it with music? Or... Yeah, I, I do it with podcasts. podcasts. When I'm running on my own, I have podcasts and I say, okay, this podcast is 50 minutes. I cannot stop till this stops. 
And then I have songs that make me feel good. And what's your, so you've got a personal one, and what's your more global or political one? Yeah, I don't want to sound like a suck up, but actually it's something you talked about in your last podcast. So I'm always looking for something, something around ideas that's going to cheer me up because I find politically I'm not feeling that cheerful at the moment. And the Daniel Chandler book, which looks at John Rawls and explains John Rawls for a modern audience and then sees how it might be applied to current politics, that is just my sort of thing. I mean, it's a little bit like the book, your book, Go Big, but I think it's more philosophical. I'm always in favour of a plug for my book, so, you know, you you can come back. (laughs) My reason to be cheerful is Joan Byers. I have become slightly obsessed with Joan Byers in the last week. Um, It's because the New York Times, which I think is absolutely brilliant newspaper, ran a series of 40 women from different generations pairing them up. And basically they paired up Lana Del Rey and Joan Byers. And this then led me, as I've been emailing you late at night, to a whole series of rabbit holes of Joan Byers. First of all, she was on the Stephen Colbert show, which is a talk show in America, and Honestly, it was absolutely brilliant. She comes on stage and he says, well, Joan Byers, I don't want to startle you, but you're Joan Byers. And then they crowd sort of all in this American way, all start cheering. Why does she make me cheerful? She's 82 and and she's amazing. She said on this thing, which sounds a bit self-aggrandizing, but I don't think it was meant this way. She said, I don't make history, I am history. You kept sending me all these links, so I I went down the rabbit hole. But honestly, and then, so that she played the March on Washington with Bob Dylan 60 years ago, right? I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And then this kind of even deeper rabbit hole I went down last night was to find this amazing BBC concert she did in 1965. And it's on the BBC. She plays a whole set for an hour and 20 minutes, including We Shall Overcome, with with audience participation. What's so extraordinary? All these people in these sort of bow ties doing audience. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I watched her singing We Shall Overcome on the English one, and it made me laugh out loud because she's American, she's glossy she's gorgeous she's young she's got this beautiful voice and then there is this english audience in kind of <laughs> dna sweaters <laughs> and 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 they're kind of going we shall <laughs> not one of them giving it any welly whatsoever <laughs> something about two different cultures and you think i'm with joan byers on this one honestly she made me really Highly, highly cheerful. Did you go down the rabbit hole of her relationship with Bob Dylan? A bit, a bit. I did, yeah. Um, I found that quite fascinating. So anybody listening can go down all those different rabbit holes. And I mean, he's a, he's a character as well. But she spoke about Martin Luther King on the Stephen Colbert show. Yeah. Actually, that was very, that was very moving. And yeah, it is a reason to be cheerful. She stood for something very important 60 years ago and she's still going and she's linking up with younger campaigners and that's what we need reasons to be cheerful with ed miliband and jeff lloyd i'm glad to say that we're joined by dr ali butchanov chanin who is senior lecturer in work psychology and public sector management and a career coach ali look set the scene for us to begin with um whether it's through your research or your coaching practice what are the main reasons that people side for wanting to take a step back from the jobs they're doing? Well, I think, Ed, the, the reasons that, that people cite for wanting to step back from their work, they're as numerous as, as the number of people that are doing the stepping back, if you know what I mean. Um, but the, the research that I do and the coaching that I'm involved in will demonstrate that it's anything from dissatisfaction with your pay or your rewards, feeling potentially underappreciated, that the work is becoming too all-encompassing, there's a lack of meaning in the work that you do. And we saw a lot of this during the Great Resignation. Lots of these things were cited as reasons for why people were stepping away from the jobs that they'd been doing for a long time. Just say what the Great Resignation is, Ali, for people who don't know. Absolutely. So it was, I suppose if you call it an extreme exodus of people from the roles that they were doing that was prompted by the pandemic. And a lot of these reasons were given as Uh, reasons for why people were stepping away from their work. But ultimately, I think the thing that underlies all of those things is a lack of fit between 
where a person is currently in the work that they're doing, whether that's the job or the occupation and where they want to be. So it might be that it doesn't fit with my values anymore. It doesn't fit with my situation. And that prompts people to then want to to make a change. Can I ask you something and see if this fits in with your theory? I wrote an article earlier this year for a, a literary magazine about the falling rates of pay of writers across the board, whether writing for streaming series or novels, all the rest of it, but the rising number of people who want to do something creative, whether it's writing or art or whatever, it's absolutely extraordinary. If you look at surveys, what's your dream job? I think number one comes in as pilot often, and number two is often writer or creative. How does that fit in with with what you're finding. That's about values, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think we, we can't overemphasize this thing around dream jobs because I think people do have that, but a lot of people don't don't see work in that way necessarily. But for those of us who do, you know, I think there's this balance between finding something that works with our vocational identity. So those things that we value in terms of who we see ourselves as a working person, but also the reality of the practicalities of it. You know, for most of us, that might not be an option. Can I actually make this work um, and live at the same time. When we were thinking about this episode, partly it was prompted by Jacinda Ardern and, and Nicola Sturgeon, who both cited the personal toll that their jobs took on them. Do you recognise what they were talking about? And also that affecting people who aren't necessarily, you know, high profile, famous politicians, but 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 as a more general phenomenon? Yes, I really do. I mean I think that the experience they're having is universal in the sense that this personal toll. I don't think everybody's in the, the kind of universally privileged situation of being able to step away when they're experiencing that. I suspect both Jacinda Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon will be very easily able to find alternative employment when the time comes. But what I do think is a universally experienced thing is that we've seen this kind of consistent increase in in work intensification such that your kind of your average joe your average joanna has experienced this like really personal cost of of working and so for a long time we've just seen especially you know including in the uk we've seen an increasing pace and intensity of work and this is something that scholars measure work intensity so it's you know it's the amount of effort physical and mental input that you have to put into your role and if you couple that with the context that we're in at the moment so where we're seeing economic hardship but we're also seeing, for example, in the public services and the public sector austerity, then those two things together mean that we're being expected to do more with less in our work. And that necessarily is going to take a toll on individuals and, and have a personal cost to us for, for actually engaging in the work. Yeah, you've done a lot of research on what you term, I think, occupational regret, mm. which sounds like something we can empathise with uh, in different ways. Talk to us a little bit about that, if you would, and, and, and why it's important. Yeah, of course. So occupational regrets, the emotion that we feel when we think we should have made a different decision when we chose our career path. And we feel it because we make an unfavorable comparison with where we are now and an imagined foregone alternative. So I could have been an X or a Y or a Z. And that's a process called counterfactual thinking. And alongside that, we blame ourselves for the situation we're in. We don't feel happy where we are and we have a wish to undo the situation that we're in. And I've been researching it for about a decade or so, and it's important because of the psychological impact it has on people. And um, so the things that we see in terms of how it affects people is that, you know, kind of rumination, unhappiness in the work that we're in, so lower job or, or career satisfaction. But it also can lead to things like burnout and has implications for how effective we are in our role if, you know, we don't really want to be there. Can I ask you about sort of critical sectors? We're, we're talking about a lot at the moment, the NHS mm. and teaching. These are big public service areas where there's obviously a lot of problems around pay. But I was talking last week to Paul Johnson, the head of the Institute of Physical Studies, and he said that actually as an employer, the NHS is terrible. You know, it just it doesn't know how to make its employees feel good. What's your thinking about that? Are those areas with particular problems? Hmm, I, I think so. I do think so. We know that in sort of almost frontline facing industries like teaching, like the NHS, that there's a big 
pull on our emotional labor in that context. And so in that context, what you'd want to see is that organizations recognize how hard that work is and give you the conditions that enable you to do that in a way that is sustainable for you. And I don't think we're doing that in those contexts at the moment. If you think about the reasons that you go into these types of work, it's often vocational. I became a nurse because I care about helping patients. I became a teacher because I want to educate children. Um, And quite often what we're seeing at the moment is that people are not being able to do that thing that they came into that particular occupation for, um, which means that they end up a little bit disaffected, dissatisfied. And at the extreme ends, that they end up worried that the things that they're doing are almost detrimental to those people they want to help because you know we haven't employed enough teachers, we haven't employed enough healthcare professionals to make it a possibility that they can do their work in a way that they feel comfortable doing it. I suppose I'm struck in this conversation that lots of what we've talked about is to do with people facing terrible time stress in their lives, time or pressure. But I guess we, this, this is the, a very incomplete conversation if we don't also talk about the so fairly obvious thing that the stress lots of people face in relation to their work is just not earning enough and feeling under incredible pressure from a cost of living crisis. And, and you know, some of the evidence is of people saying, well, I just can't get enough hours to work. I'm either unemployed or I'm underemployed. So there's sort of different experiences, and maybe it's a fairly obvious but nevertheless important point. There's different experiences in the labour market, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think this is where more structural um, solutions need to be thought about. I mean, we can only do so much as an organisation and or um, as individuals to make our work work better for us. Um, but ultimately, if it's if it's not doing its very kind of basic aim, which is helping us live, then I think there's a, there's a sort of bigger problem going on here. Last question, Ali. When Jeff's here, we have a thing called the Jeffocracy. It's now the Melissaocracy, I'm glad <laughs> to say. If you were the Minister for Work, what would your first act be? You've got total carte blanche. <sighs> Melissa is a very hands-off ruler, I <laughs> think. Well, I'm actually not sure that's true. I always say Jeff's a hands-off ruler. I think Melissa would be a much more hands-on ruler. But anyway, <laughs> Melissa, go on. T- t- what kind of rule are we – I mean, it's not for me to say. What, what kind of rule are we going to have? Oh, I think it's very benign and let a thousand flowers grow, but let my flower grow far bigger than everybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what would you do? I think in the ideal world, we would be thinking about this sort of thing a lot earlier, at the kind of pre-career stages, and then really thinking about the structures that we put in place at that point in time, really helping people understand themselves as individuals so that they go into making choices about careers in a much more informed and uh, useful way, but also having what we call realistic job previews or realistic occupation previews so that we don't go into these things thinking we're going into one thing and then become disappointed because it's something else. I think as well, you know, I think of myself as, you know, a 43-year-old woman who is still navigating her career values and her career identity. So how can we ask a 16-year-old to make decisions about their careers um, that are going to potentially affect the rest of their lives when I'm still at this stage trying to work out, you know, what I'm about in terms of my career? We don't get people at that stage where, you know, we're catching them before they go into their careers. It's we're trying to fix things once they're in the midst of this career that they want to then change. I suppose one thing that really just struck me just listening to you, Ali, is that I think about my own kids who are 12 and 13 and the question children tend to get asked is what job will you uh, do you want to do when you grow up not what jobs do you want to do mm-hmm. i think there is something very job for life yeah sort of single track about the way these things are thought about but but actually if i can in, sorry if i can interrupt ed but it, it adds on to the question i think that question isn't right either what job yeah. i think you should be asking young people what do you really love doing? Yeah, it's completely right. What do you really get meaning from? Completely right. Because I don't think that changes throughout a life. I started writing at six and I still, writing is what gives me meaning. To the extent um, that the values generally remain constant, if we can understand what our values are, then a number of different roles might fit to that. I think part of the issue is, is when we go down a particular career path that has a lot of sunk costs. So if you think about professional career paths where you have higher education, you have, you know, you have to gain a lot of experience and the barriers to entry are really high. It means then you get kind of funneled into this path that is really difficult to deviate away from because of those sunk costs. And I see that a lot in the stuff on regret. People want to change, 
but they can't because of the sunk costs and because of the high barriers to entry in other occupations. Well, look, Ali, you've been absolutely brilliant. Really interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. So now I'm delighted we're turning to Lucy Kellaway, whose articles I have read over many, many years and who's involved in all sorts of things I'm fascinated by. So, Lucy, can I start by asking you the simple question, which is that you were a Financial Times journalist for over 30 years, which a lot of people would think is the dream job. And there came a moment when you decided to give it up and become a maths teacher. Why? Yeah, it was the dream job. You're completely right. But dreams can't last for 30 years. That's very unusual. Look, I think the whole way we think about careers is wrong. This, what are you going to do when you grow up as if it's one thing? So I found myself in my late 50s thinking, yeah, this has been great. I've loved it. But do I really want to do one thing my whole life? So it was just too long. And also the other thing is your motivation changes as you get older. I think when I went into journalism, I wanted to feel that I was impressive. I wanted to be able to say to people at the dinner parties that I now never go to, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm a columnist on the Financial Times. And I guess I thought what I want to do now is something that's actually useful. You did talk about sort of moments of change that happened quite slowly, your mother dying, your father dying, and they'd and these things moved you to a new place, as well as being fed up with status and not needing it anymore. Yeah, background things about changing motivation, they build and they build and they build. But sometimes it takes a sort of trigger to do something. Uh, my mum died 15 years ago. She was this amazing teacher. Dad died 10 years later. And I just remember pretty much the day after he died, going into the where all the journalists were sort of scrambling around as if some minor headline was really important, looking at them and just thinking, I'm out. I'm absolutely done with this. And what was it about teaching in particular that drew you to it? So when my oldest daughter left university, she joined Teach First, which was set up 15 or so years ago to try and get these sort of students who might otherwise have been going off to McKinsey and Goldman Sachs to do something actually worthwhile. I watched Rose, my oldest daughter, in that first term. I spoke to her every day in this nightmare school in Leeds um, where she was teaching. And I just thought, my God, you are really doing something and listening to her talking about these children who she was trying to interest in history. I thought, well, I wonder if I can do that. But the other thing was listening to her talk about the shortage of teachers. Thought, well, if Teach First exists, where the hell is Teach Last? Where the hell is the organization for people who are like me, who have kind of done it with their first career, who want to start all over again? Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, is you didn't just go into teaching, teaching in a tough, hackney, comprehensive, starting with maths, and I think you moved to economics, but you set up Now Teach. It wasn't called Teach Last, it, it was called Now Teach, wasn't it? Which was for, for old, well, I don't know, oldies don't seem so old to me, but you, that's a new adventure too, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, actually looking back on it, what an incredibly hubristic thing to do when I had no idea come with me everybody be a teacher too but you know I really had the bit between my teeth and I knew from FT readers and from my friends my contemporaries that there really is this thing that even people who have had very happy working lives do tend to find themselves slightly beached in their 50s thinking oh you know do I still love this do I want to do something else so I thought come on let's all do it together which was really what we did I can't help feeling that's aimed at me. Beached in my 50s. I'm kidding. I'm serious. You might be kidding, but I think you would make an amazing teacher. Oh, I'm not sure. So what's the experience been like? Because I was very struck about how much you say you love the job in an an article that you wrote. I mean, it was very hard at the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, it was incredibly hard at the beginning. And in a way, one of the things that was hardest is that I used to be good at my job. You know, I would write my columns and, you know, I I mean, I jolly well ought to have been good at it because I've been doing it for long (laughs) enough. Then you find yourself in front of 30, not necessarily super friendly teenagers, and you don't have 
flew. And that is quite brutal, sort of being useless live, not only in front of the kids, but with a couple of sort of young teacher mentors who are watching your every mistake. And then you have to go and do it again that day and again, and still you're not good, still you're useless. I mean, I think I had this fantastically unrealistic idea that because I was quite confident, I thought I can perform, I can talk, teaching's in the blood, what could possibly go wrong? And that was such an arrogant thing to say. But teaching is not easy. And it has taken me a very long time to get to a level of decent proficiency. And how many years in are you now, Lucy? I'm six years in now. And you really enjoy it? Yes, I absolutely love being in the classroom. What could be more optimistic than that? To spend your life with teenagers who are funny. They're by definition optimistic because they're at the beginning of their lives. So one of the lucky things which your FT side of your life allowed you to do was to write about your journey. You might have written this article already, but could you please write an article for the FT about what you've learned about what makes teaching sustainable and enjoyable and how it can be applied across the board, not just to amazingly experienced people who've already paid off their mortgage and have had their status fixed. I think that would be such a helpful thing. Yes, and it's absolutely vital. And that the sustainability thing came from my daughter, who was teaching in a frankly unsustainable way. You know, sort of deputy head, works 12 hours a day, is exhausted. She said to me, Mum, this job is on you. You've got to do it in a way that doesn't kill yourself and show the others how to do it. Can I ask, Lucy, is the lesson to draw from your experience that we can do more than one career, which is what you're doing, or is it also a lesson about what really we value as a society? In other words, being a journalist at the FT versus being a teacher. I think it's both. I think the first one, for sure, we must all, and we must tell children, we must start early saying, if you have a really fulfilling career, expect to do at least two really different things. There are financial implications that go with that as well. That if you keep on doing the same thing, the chances are that your uh, salary will rise. If you change completely, your salary will fall. But if we know that this is the model, we can start to plan for it. And it shouldn't just be two, it should be maybe more than that. So there's definitely that. I feel really, really strongly about it. And that as we are all healthier and need to go on earning money for longer, that we should really look at this whole business of sort of 50 something trainees who possibly they've spent, they've had their most expensive years, they can afford that pay cut and all the rest of it. So yes, to point number one. Point number two, um, I I give a more qualified yes about uh, what we value as a society. I think we will all, I don't feel too hair shirt about this. I think, I don't think there's anything the matter with valuing supposedly glamorous things. But where I think things really have gone wrong is if, as a society, we think overall that is more important than teaching. And I do really think that, as a society, you know, we just do not value teachers enough. And there have definitely been, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at this internationally. And the UK is way down in the bottom half. But let me ask a final question, which is we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, uh, where Jeff is the supreme ruler. And I'm glad to say that he's been overthrown. If you were the sort of minister for education or indeed the minister for career pathways in the Melissaocracy and you had complete free reign, what would you do either in teaching or more generally in, in relation to the careers question we've been discussing? Yeah, I think more generally, you encourage all professions to have new entry routes for older people. We're in a very, very tight job market. You know, the current government has made some, I think, sort of slightly pathetic and misguided attempts to try and get the 50s off the golf course. That's not the problem. The problem is that there just aren't those ways in. So just a tiny example, when I wrote my first piece about the beached 50-somethings saying, come be a teacher, I had a thousand emails just immediately from people saying, you're describing me. And they weren't even people who wanted to teach. So this is a wide 
open opportunity and we need it economically as a country. I mean, it's good for the 50-year-olds themselves, but that's not policy. We don't really care about the 50-year-olds themselves necessarily. We really care about them being able to use their experience. I mean, almost whatever you do, if you change to something else, you'll be richer at doing that something else because you've got a whole bank of experience. Lucy Kellaway, it's been fantastic to talk to you. If people want to find out more about Now Teach, how do they do that? That's so easy. They just go to our website. We've trained about 700 teachers all together. We're growing all the time. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, I'm delighted to say that we are joined now by Katie White, who is my friend and who works at WWF, but she is on a career break traveling around the world with her family, and I am so envious. Katie, you are joining us from South Korea. I am indeed, Ed, and it's lovely to be here. Cool. Tell us, what has it been like? How many months have you been traveling and you're traveling with your husband, Sam, and your two kids? What's it been like? Amazing. Uh, So we've been traveling since we left in December. So we were already planned to go on a trip to New Zealand, which we've been planning and talking about for 15 years. My mother-in-law is a Kiwi and I wanted my children to experience New Zealand with her. We were always going to do this this special trip. And just when it came to it, the circumstances had changed and we just decided, you know what, let's make this a trip of a lifetime and let's do the things we wanted to do and let's extend the time. So we were away for six months. And how many countries have you been to? We've been to, I think, eight or nine now. So, yeah, I mean, we're trying to make sure that we uh, maximise our time, obviously, but try and actually experience it at the same time and uh, try and see how much we can really get into it. And it's a balancing act as well with two children who aren't really into the history tours. (laughs) So to try and keep them happy, but at the same time, see things. But there's a lot of things that we found that we do have in common that, you know, we'll, we'll take home and relish. And you were doing a very high-pressure job at WWF. Obviously, your personal circumstances enabled it to happen, but what led you to want to kind of do this? Yeah, I I think before I went away, it was a tough period and it's been a tough few years for everybody. I personally felt a bit like a, a tractor wheel. And I remember talking to somebody saying, I feel a bit like I'm a tractor and I'm spit, a wheel that's spinning the mud and there's mud flying everywhere and I just cannot get the traction. I was starting to feel quite exhausted. COVID obviously was really tough for everybody. We had cancer as well in our family and other challenges that just meant I found it incredibly stressful. I know lots of other people did, everybody did, but you know, it was a tricky time. And I think, you know, there was a few warning signs in terms of I wasn't sleeping as well. Um, and I just, I just didn't really feel I had as much of my mojo, to be honest. I kept going and my personality type, which I'll need to make sure I am more aware of when I come back is to just 
keep going and do more and more and more. It turns out that's not always the best thing. You know, COVID was so difficult for a lot of people because they were at home with their children and that proved to be really stressful. But you're on the road with your children with no break. Mum, my guess is that's a hell of a lot easier. Am I right? Yeah, I have to say there was a there was a moment when I thought, flipping heck, we we've gone away to 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 have some time and restore and and back to homeschooling. I was like, what have I done? We might be a bit behind with the set text, but hopefully we've got other things to counterbalance that. And it must be such an important lesson for them about sort of life and the world outside your year three, year four schoolwork. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hope so. One of the reasons I really wanted to go as well was because, you know, as you know, like my work is focused a lot on climate change and nature restoration. And I wanted to see some of the things that sadly, I'm not sure will be there for all of their lifetime. And that's a really hard, it's hard to face up to. And it has been tricky at times. There's also some absolutely awe-inspiring things that we've done that has made me fall in love with the planet all over again and more. You said you went into December. So if I got my maths right, you're coming near the end of your trip now and you'll be coming back. And I'm wondering, what do you think in this six months, this mini career break you've had, how do you think that will change what you do and how you are when you get back? I mean, you must have thought about that and thought, will I become a tractor wheel by July? Do you think about that? <laughs> Do you know, I've thought about it more in the last week since since I oh, got sorry. asked to come on this than I have. No, not at all than I have because I'm very much goal orientated. You know, I'll come out with a plan at the end and these are the lessons I've learned. And I spoke to a couple of people before and they said, please don't do that. You know, please just enjoy it and sit with it and, and go with it and just be open and explore. But I think in terms of what I've learned, I think I've learned to be calmer. And that's not less ambitious. I think I'm, if anything, more ambitious when I get back, you know, but I think, and maybe it's because I've stopped drinking coffee. We'll see how long that lasts. But yeah, I've definitely learned to be calm. And I think it's a bit of, uh, as well, a check on the ego when actually work carries on just fine when you're not there. (laughs) You know, you think and you're there at 11 o'clock at night going, oh, if I don't do this, it won't happen. And it does happen. And actually, you know, nobody's irreplaceable. And hopefully I, I will still add lots of value. But I think it's a good check on the ego to think, you know, we can all go away and it will be okay. There's a piece around spending time with the kids and and finding things naturally I feel I've had to sort of open my risk circle because of them because you get to a circumstance and you know we've got to places and we're totally lost and actually me and my husband were probably both like oh my god where are we what are we doing is this but you've got to put on a brave face and you've got to keep going because otherwise they pick up on it I'm excited but you know I'm going to reflect and keep turning around what's happened and and what that means and how I can use it going forward There'll be some people who are listening who think, you know, God, I wish I could afford to do that. You know, I just can't, simply can't imagine a world in which I can afford to do what Katie's doing. But because we're talking here about work and sort of people changing careers, people taking career breaks, people thinking about how they put their work in context. I mean, what do you think the lesson is, Katie, about spending time with your kids and all of that, which is incredibly important, but... Is there a sort of wider lesson here about how we get overwhelmed by work and can't see the wood for the trees? Let's address me personally, because I think, you know, I totally acknowledge that I'm in a privileged position to be able to do this. And we, my work situation, because I was a job sharer, I was able to do it. My job sharer picked up the other half of my job. So that was, you know, a, a, a unique, not a unique, but, you know, an unusual circumstance we use some savings, you know, Sam's been working uh, to fund some of it. So there's a combination of logistical things that we've done to make it work. But, you know, that is a privilege. But there's also a sort of emotional piece around some people are like, good Lord, you're just going to rip up the carpet and go. And I was like, yeah, there's often a thing of thinking why we can't do something as opposed to why we can do it, you know, so I think quite often we get stuck. And particularly, as you say, that wood for the trees, like we're working harder and harder. And yet, for less and mental health is crumbling and really going to reflect on the different cultures I've seen and the different lifestyles I've seen and see what we can learn, you know, and what we can take from that, what we might be able to to use going forward because something's not quite right. 
I met a teacher from Australia who did a 80% salary and every fifth year she has a year off and goes traveling. And I was like, what an amazing thing. And she came back fresher, more excited, more ideas for the children. You know, other people get can get stale for themselves and their organization. So yeah, loads of ideas of how we can build it in. But again, I've got some personal responsibility here of making sure I sort myself out and manage myself better. But yeah, I think there is hopefully things I can bring back. But also look, in a way, it's rather interesting if we're talking about careers and multiple careers, you know, we talk about some people who go to university who have gap years, you know, it's like, why gap years only for young people? Look, I, I think there's loads of different ways. And clearly, in a way, what we've done is fairly radical. I think there's things you could do even day to day, do you know what I mean, that could allow you to pause. Adam Khan, who you might know, who's a, who looks at, at peace processes and radical collaboration, he had a piece out and said, you know, there's a real responsibility of taking care of yourself. And if you're going to be, he was particularly focusing this actually at the environmental and the climate change movement, just saying, if you're going to be in this for a long haul, and, you know, I hope to be working on climate restoration and, you know, making our healthy lives and planet for, for many decades to come, you will need to take time out, you know, and you will need to look after yourself. I've done this article last last year and when I read it, I was like, oh, you know, and some words just land with you and you're like, oh, I really need to do something. Um, and so when the opportunity came up, I just, you know, I was literally, there was a big stop sign in my head of like, stop, let's not run into something else. Let's, you know, let's take this moment. Um, and so we did. You described it as a privileged decision, which I kind of get your point but it's it's unusual and it's radical but I would really hope that you would come back to WWF and to our overwhelmed overworked under thoughtful culture and give us a few of your lessons from my time out you know because I I do think people need to hear it and I do think organizations need to think seriously about how to allow people to pause regularly in order to be more reflective and I hate to say it to work to work better and I'm sure you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I'd say, you know, they've been incredibly supportive. And I've met up with colleagues internationally, you know, that I wouldn't have met up with from WF offices. You know, I think that Britain's role in restoration and that's a planet and people. And I think we can get back onto a better footing. But I do. it feels to me that something does need to change. Um, and we do feel a bit shattered and a bit overwhelmed and you know just like nature we need a bit of restoration well look katie i think we're both incredibly jealous but incredibly grateful to you for sparing a few minutes out of your fantastic journey to come and speak to us have a, have a brilliant rest of trip and look forward to seeing you when you get back me too take care thank you so much for having me I'm delighted to introduce our final guest, Jager Wise, who is the co-founder and head brewer at Wildcard Brewery London, which I am going to go and visit. Can I start by asking you a simple question? I think you trained as a chemical engineer, didn't you? But how, how did you get into the brewing business? Oh, whenever I ask <laughs> that question, I always say uh, drinking too much beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way you get into the beer business so I was just making beer at home I was just messing about with friends really it wasn't really a a coordinated plan but in 2012 it was uh, lots of recession time going on that's when we started the business and there was a government scheme that happened a number of years before that really uh, kick-started the craft beer movement there was basically a 50 percent juicy relief on small brewers which just everything just kind of went mad and, and we were in the wave of new breweries that that started at the time you make it sound quite straightforward <laughs> and I'm thinking first of all making your own beer I used to share a flat with a woman whose boyfriend made his own beer and it mystified me as much then as it does now it did taste very good. Did the boyfriend mystify you or the beer, Melissa? Absolutely both. I think, right, okay. I, think the, I think the boyfriend more than the beer, actually. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, but you're opening a brewery. That means you've got property and you're, you're, you know, you took over a physical place, didn't you? Yeah, so we uh, started with no money. Who's the we in this, Jager? We are a couple of friends of mine. So it's Andrew, my colleague, and my other colleague, William. And were you just like having a drink one day and thought, 
let's set up a brewery. I mean, well, the thing is, I mean, if you remember at the time, so it was like 2010, yeah. 2011, it was really hard to find work. And it was kind of easy for me because yeah. I, I graduated with a 2-1 in chemical engineering from a good university. So I was quite set. But my colleague, William, especially, so he he, he has a politics degree. <laughs> and that was really tough. That was tough. Not much use, as I can attest. <laughs> Absolutely uh, useless. Yeah. You're working as a chemical engineer, yeah? Well, I went into uh, chemical sales. Chemical sales. So you're working chemical sales. And so how does this idea first strike you? It strikes my colleagues, actually. So they're in the pub. Yeah. And we we've been messing around together making beer for a long time, going to beer festivals, etc. And they were like, you know, you know that craft beer thing? You know what? We're gonna have a go at making beer. And then they did that. And at the time I was working, like I said, buying and selling chemicals all around the world, where in reality I was moving shipping containers around the world, but all day what I was really doing was sending emails all day. So I quit my job with no plan. Which you can imagine, if you're on the science track, it's quite an intense track. I've been on that my whole life. You obviously take things in your stride, but you say, I quit my job with no plan. I mean, that must have been quite a hard thing to do. Well, yes. Yes, from an idealistic perspective. No, because I just got a job in a pub. So <laughs> You got a job. I, I see you got a job. Yeah, so I just got a job in a pub. So I quit my job, no plan. I was like, I'm done. I was building expertise in chemicals that specifically go into the paint industry. Right. And to say it was like watching paint dry is an, and is not <laughs> an understatement. But as you as you imply, you've been on this STEM track, yeah. you know, and that's considered a high status, great thing for a young woman oh, yeah. to do. And you said, no, I don't enjoy it. So that's, that's, that's incredibly brave. Definitely. I suppose it is. And I think the key thing is just that brewing fits into that STEM track, but you don't realise it does. Because being a brewer, you're using science, using chemistry, you're using all of these skills, the same skills, but it wouldn't necessarily be what the career sphere tells you that you're going to do. Returning to your story, you get the job in the pub and then – your friend set up the brewery and you go in with them and start doing the brewing, yeah? Yeah, so I said, oh, you know what, I'm just going to help you out because I'm yeah, I'm, I'm part-time in the pub. So I said, oh, I'll help you out, I've got time. And then I, I never left, really. <laughs> and how quickly did it take off? What then happened? Did you find you loved doing the brewing? Yeah, I mean, I would say how quickly did it take off? It's, it's quite interesting. I think loads of people think when a new business starts, you go from zero to oh my goodness, there's so many sales. And that's just not my reality. And it's not the reality of lots of businesses out there. I think it it, it goes from uh, day by day. So one day you'll do one, the next day you might sell one and a half, the third day you might sell two. Um, You know what I mean? It's it's a lot of work over time. And, And now I'm in a position 11 years later, business is doing well. We literally just won Brewery Business of the Year this year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. But that sort of thing takes time and it takes experience, I think. Head brewer sounds like a pretty responsible job. Does it have big stresses and strains? I like to run my ship in that I take responsibility for everything. So the bad, the good, the buck stops with me. And yes, that is stressful at times, but... I mean, we're making beer at the end of the day. It's, it's the funnest job in the world. It really is. I mean, we, we get to go out and go to events and tastings and parties and, and, and we can call that work. You've also, you do TV, don't you? And radio presenting and other stuff. You're developing from your job as head brewer. So that's fun as well, I presume. You talk about the beer. Yeah. So I'm one of the presenters on the BBC Food Programme which is Radio 4 every week at 12.30. And with that, you get to travel around the country talking to incredible food producers. And we like to focus a lot on our tagline is from cooking to culture, politics to pleasure. So there is a lot of stories you can tell across spectrum, some incredible stories, but 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 through the lens of, 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 of food. Let's ask finally, if you had a piece of advice for our listeners, if some of them are doing jobs that they're not, not loving, but they've got a sort of thing that they really do love. What what's your what's your advice to them? I would say the key thing is being able to pay the bills. That that's the key thing. And in order to to do that, 
well obviously depending on your living situation but but you can just get a job in a, in a pub just while, whilst you figure yourself out and it was one of the things I enjoyed the most was to go from this entirely stressful situation to this situation where I just had time to think I just had time to just plan my next move like your shift starts and it ends and there's nothing else you don't have to do anything else you don't have to think about anything else um, and you can buy yourself some real breathing room I don't want to live with regrets. I, I, I don't know about you lot, but my goal, my want, my, my desire in life is to do the thing that makes you happy. I think you can't go wrong aiming for that, really. Great note to end on, Jager Wise. We're going to come and have some of your beer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, I found that an absolutely fascinating conversation. I tell you one thing that sort of occurred to me, which is in a way is sort of underlying the conversation, is that it's quite a privilege to think of work as something you do because you you enjoy it, not just because you've got to try and pay the bills. I think it's really important to sort of bring that out. That is a real privilege. Yeah. And, and I mean, Ali brought that out, didn't she, when she talked about autonomy and that if if you can be in control of your working life, you can be working very, very hard but you're still enjoying it and loving it. And that, that, that's, that's another important thing. And so many millions of people aren't in control of their work and are doing it because it's the only way they can make ends meet. Yeah, I felt there was a slight thread that we didn't follow through and that I have a reluctance to indulge in a way, which is that you have a job that you don't like, but you've got to stick at it. And you can find ways to make it better by shifting your attitude. And I it's not that I don't believe in it, but I wonder whether some jobs are just impossible to really in, enjoy. And we don't talk about that enough because, to be honest, we had on three, four people who obviously love what they do yeah. and have found ways to yeah. do it in with variety. Can I just say one of the things that occurred to me is that the point you made a couple of times, but that was totally illustrated by our guests is that career change is now the thing Jaeger Wise you know I don't know how old she is but she's already been a chemical engineer shipping things around the country now she's a brewer now she's a podcast and radio presenter I think this is the norm I mean some funnily enough when I've last looked at the figures on this job tenure and career tenure don't seem to have changed as much as you might have expected but I think I think increasingly for younger people, this is the world that we're moving into. I found Lucy's experience incredibly inspiring, don't you think? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I think Lucy has written about how she was able to do it because by the time she made the move, she paid off her mortgage, she had some savings, and that's not to undercut what she's done at all. No, no, but you're right to make this point because that's underlying so much of Yeah, I think the spine of pay and earnings... Is, is there through everything and defines and shapes a lot of people's experience. And we, we, we touched on it, but I think it's really crucial, particularly a cost of living crisis. Like we talk about the great resignation. I mean, actually, a lot of people have gone back into the workforce now because they yes. have to. I suppose one thing that will have occurred to you a lot because of your expertise in education is what does this all mean for the structure of education, which is a whole other podcast, I guess. I guess so. I mean, my feeling is now, without being miserable on a programme called Reasons to be Cheerful, (laughs) that our education system is not really fit for purpose in terms of the way our work world is going and the skills that we need. And also, I think, you know, schools shouldn't all be about the future anyway. It should be about enjoying the now, just like work should be about enjoying the now. We've drifted far away from that. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, as we say, whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. And gosh, Melissa, I wanted to report on some telly that I've been watching, which is Colin from Account. I've seen it. You've seen Colin from Account? Yes. What do you think? I, I was sort of sceptical. I'm always sceptical at the beginning of a programme. But actually, I came to kind of love it. You know, I came to love the two main characters who meet in the unusual way. Yeah. 
to do, it's to do with the dog, we should explain. Colin, is the, Colin from Accounts is the dog. It's the dog. And it's the dog that the main romantic lead, if you can call him that, he knocks over Colin from Accounts while admiring. I think I'll just say that, admiring. Yeah. The, and in fact, they're married in real life. I didn't know that, the two of them. I didn't know that either. Oh, yeah, they are. And, I, you know, I came to love Colin, the dog. I thought he was so adorable. And uh, I thought it was funny. And it was also had a brewing element because he works in a brewery. So when I saw that we were going to be interviewing Jager Wise, I thought um, yeah. there's a bit of a brewing thing there. It's a little bit scatological for me. There's a bit too much about bodily... Yeah. Is that not very Ben thing, scatological functions? <laughs> Why? Is that, is that a Miliband thing to be... Well, I, no, my father was always very funny about scatological things. Oh, and, was like, he? He was quite sort of English about it. Yeah, well, maybe mine were, but I, I like to think I'm just a little bit more refined than that. I mean, it's set <laughs> in Australia, we should say this. But it, they're, they're so hilarious about a certain kind of middle-class family. I can say that the child who's six is called Berlin. And, <laughs> and actually, it's amazing comedy about class and pretension, which revolves around Colin from accounts. So uh, maybe that will encourage everyone to get to the end. Well, Melissa, can I say it has been an absolute pleasure to have you as uh, our guest host. Uh, we would love to have you back. So I would like to thank our guests, Ali Bujanovchanin, Lucy Kellaway, Katie White and Jay Gawise. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed did the music. James Deakin did the eye dance. And our artwork was designed by, this is where you say Henry Cull, Melissa. Henry Cull. She's been Melissa Ben. And you've been Ed Miliband. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.